0: Well, good morning, again, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Dan, and I'm the transitional pastor here um, at Simi Covenant. I'm so glad that you are here this morning. There's three words that I was thinking about this week, fairness, justice, and meritocracy. These words are very important in American society. We're taught to believe in things like the American dream, where if you work hard enough, you can achieve just about anything. That the mo- of the mo- one of the most important things in life is to receive what you have earned. You work for it, and you get it. Much of our economy runs on merit. It's a merit-based system, in theory at least where if you produce more, you receive more. If you produce better, your rewards are better. Now, that's how things work here. But there's a problem. This is a very American way to think. know, I'm very much influenced by this cultural ideology of life and how I understand concepts of justice. Yet, the Christian faith offers what I would describe as a counterculture, something that is a little bit different than what our society at large teaches us. It's an alternative vision of life, which quite frankly is not fair. And thank God that it is not fair. We'll get into that. This morning, we're going to continue our exploration of themes related to thanks and giving. Last week, we explored the notion that we are to build a lifestyle of grace, which is built upon a foundation of grace, which is the basis of our faith as Christians. Today, we're going to look at another parable found in the gospel according to Matthew. In Matthew chapter 20, the parable of the workers of the field, or maybe another way to put it is the parable of the generous landowner. Feel free to turn there if you have your Bibles with you. Matthew chapter 20, we are also going to have the words on the screen, um, and you can follow along from there. But before we read that, let's pray together. Lord, I thank you that we have your scriptures to turn to. Lord, I thank you that our society, our world, doesn't give us All the answers, but the answers come from a divine source, from you. Lord, would you turn our hearts to your word today? Lord, help us to not only be challenged by your word, but to think about what it means for us in our life today. In Christ's name, amen. Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. Now, I I should back up just a second. Before Jesus tells this parable, something happens. Uh, There was a rich guy who came up to Jesus and said, what do I need to do to enter the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, well, sell all your possessions and give it to the poor. Eventually, that man goes away a little bit dejected and because it's really hard to do that when you've got a lot. And so the disciples wonder, well, how can anybody then enter the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, well, certainly what is impossible on human strength is possible with God. And then Peter goes into this line of questioning. He says, well, we have left everything. What will be there for us? You get the sense that Peter's like, look, we did it. So what do we get out of it? Like he's looking for a reward here. He's looking for, hey, look how good we are, us disciples who had left everything. And then Jesus basically goes into this discussion and he says, well, many who were the first will be last, and many who were the last will be first. And you'll see at the end of this parable, Jesus reiterates that to bookend it. So it's within this context of Peter trying to figure out, what do I get out of, after I've given up everything? What do I get? He's thinking about what he's earned, what he's worth. Alright? So, In that context, Jesus begins this story. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius, which is about a day's work, for the day and send them to his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing there in the marketplace doing nothing. Then he told them, Hey, you also go out and work in the vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again at noon and at about three in the afternoon and did the same thing about five in the afternoon, one hour before the close of the workday. Well, five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. And he asked them, why have you been standing around doing nothing? Because no one hired us, they answered. And then he said to them, you also go. Go work in my fields, work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers, call all of them, and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired, the ones who came at five, and going on to the first. The workers who were hired at about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius, a day's wage. So when those who came, who were hired first came, they expected to receive more. I mean, after all, they worked more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. This is not fair." But he answered one of them, "'I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I have to you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my money? Are you envious because I am generous? And then the phrase again so the last will be first and the first will be last. Something about this passage sits really wrong with me. Right? Some of you are like, uh huh. It's likely because, as I have said, I, along with many, if not all of you, are highly influenced by our culture, which teaches us what is fair and what is not. We're taught to think that you get what you work for. Our sense of hard work and fairness demands that people receive just payment for their work, or at least that's the ideal. We acknowledge, of course, that because of sin and greed, a lot of our parts of our society are not equal. And people work hard and don't earn the same amounts of things. People don't get the same start in life. I realized that as a... I grew up in a fairly wealthy home. I have privileges and access to things that a lot of other people did not. My parents could pay for me to go to an expensive private school for college um, out of the state, and a lot of other people could not. I've had access to things. I worked hard, some of my friends worked just as hard, I had different access. I can acknowledge that I've lived a life of privilege. But even in the world of wage imbalance and unequal opportunity, we still have our innate sensibility, which tells us that these kinds of things are... There's something off about it. It's not fair. It's not right. We have a certain way of looking at what is fair and what is right in our way of looking at things in what I would call our kingdom. There's two contrasting kingdoms here in this parable. There is the kingdom of our way of doing things, our kingdom, and then there is God's kingdom. On the one side, there is our kingdom, and you might say, well, what's wrong with liking things fair and equal? In many ways, I think It is right that we care about equality and and fairness because it's part of our innate sense that God has given us. There is something about the image of God which affirms that things should be fair. Yet, our human cultures have sometimes twisted this and kind of turned it just a little bit where fairness or our emphasis on fairness causes us to not be able to see the other side of things which is grace and generosity here we're not talking about us being unfair to people we're talking about people receiving even though they didn't deserve it but that is in a sense the basis of the gospel the gospel itself is not based on meritocracy that you have earned anything in fact, the gospel that we hold, that is taught to us in scripture, is indeed that we have not earned it at all. Hence grace. There are two competing kingdoms, our kingdom and God's kingdom. And we're going to jump into this comparison a little bit between our kingdom and God's kingdom. The first point of comparison that I see is that on one side we have meritocracy, that is a system of government, usually, that is based on merits. A system that says, if you've earned it, that's what you receive. It kind of gets into this phrase that we hear sometimes in our society, that God helps those who help themselves. Have any of you heard that? Have any of you heard that before? God helps those who help themselves. According to the, uh, to the Barna Research Group, um, the majority of Ma- Americans believe that this is a phrase that comes from the Bible. Some posited that this was from the Ten Commandments. In fact, shockingly, a lot of Christians believe that this comes from the Bible or that this is a biblical idea. But this is not the Bible. This is not what the Bible teaches, that God helps those who help themselves. This is something that kind of creeps into our thinking and our ideology that is sort of based on this idea that there is this sort of way of fairness. You've got to work hard. There's no handouts here, except in the Christian faith, there is a handout. The whole concept of salvation itself is a handout, right? There is grace. In the kingdom of God, the ideal of grace is primary, even over that of fairness, because without it, we would all be lost. The basis of the Christian faith is that we actually don't get what we deserve. Instead, it is given to us undeserved. Yet, still many of us find ourselves striving to be worthy of God's forgiveness. Friends, if you're in that situation where you're struggling with areas of sin and temptation and you keep beating yourself up about it, trying to strive to be worthy of God's forgiveness and grace, let it go. You are not worthy. That's the point. God loves you and gives grace anyway. That is what grace is. But some of us, we allow this earthly kingdom way of looking at things to supersede the way that the kingdom of God functions. That we look at fairness and we look down on opportunities of generosity or we turn away from opportunities of generosity because we are thinking about a certain type of fairness. In this parable, the workers are not being paid according to their work. They are being paid according to the landowner's grace and generosity. It is not fair, but it is God's way. A second point that we theme that emerges here is the idea of comparison. The people here, in the, wor- the workers here, their eyes are not so much on just the blessings that they have received. After all, they were workers. They didn't have a job that day, but they were called in to work. They get caught up in a comparison game. Their eyes are set on what other people received. This is a very... I I, I hesitate to say American thing because I think that this is something that happens all over the world, but especially here where we have so much access to things and we can have a lot of things, you know, I look at it in the way my kids eat. You know, there's times, you know, I have a 12, I have 12 soon to be 13-year-old, a 10-year-old, ten, uh, 10 a 7-year-old, and a 2-year-old. Now, the 2-year-old doesn't get caught in this trap because she just simply cannot eat the same amount that the others can eat, but especially the older two. My goodness, you set a plate of food out there. They are diving in to see who can get more And if they notice that somebody else has eaten more, one of the the other brother has had more, then, of course, the other one is going to try to eat more, outdo him. I'm like, dude, if your stomach is full, just stop. There's no point in competing over this. It's not like you have food insecurity here. You could just eat and be full and be thankful for what you have. But you see, they get caught up in this comparison game. Now, that's a very innocuous, very uh, simple way, kind of innocent sort of way that comparison plays itself out in our family life. But there are other ways that are a little bit more tricky to navigate. We have made the decision that our oldest son does not have a cell phone. Almost every one of his friends at school has a cell phone. Think about the comparison game there. I don't know how many times he's come home and asked us for a cell phone, And we keep telling him, when you show us that you're trustworthy and we can know what you're going to make the right decisions on the internet and everything, then we'll get you a cell phone. Um, And he's building that trust and he's working hard to build that trust. But there's a comparison game that he gets caught up in. There's a peer pressure that says, well, other people have this, so I want to have this too. Other people have this kind of thing. I want to have this too. And it's not just kids that fall into this trap, right? That we have so many conveniences and that we want to have what somebody else has you know i had this time i, I was at a friend's house and i saw that they had this beautiful toaster oven and i was like, where would you guys get this and they, we got it at costco and it was a toaster oven that could also yeah, the doors open kind of automatically it was very beautiful it was so pristine and clean it was beautiful big you could fit a whole like good-sized pizza in there to toast it up And it had a dehydration function, too. I thought, man, this thing is awesome. I want this, too. In part because I was comparing with what I have in my house and what they had in their house. We get caught up in this comparison trap. This is in contrast to gratefulness. Now, Theodore Roosevelt once said, comparison is the thief to joy. We get caught up in looking at what other people have. So much so that we become unable to see the blessings that we do have. We compare ourselves that we have, my phone is two and a half years old. The processing power in that phone is still more than the original moon landing. But I look at what other people have And I kind of want that. I'm unable to, in my comparative mind, appreciate, to be grateful for what I have. You see, that's what was going on here with these workers in the field. They had been given something that they didn't have originally, but because their eyes were focused on someone else, what they got, they were not that grateful. You see, when we live in such a way that is worried about what other people have, of keeping up with the Joneses, as it were, it sets us up into a world that is increasingly concerned about us acquiring things, about us getting our own. It's a focus on ourselves. It is a selfishness. You see, in our kingdom, we are worried about our own goods, the selfishness of our own lives, whether we can acquire this or acquire that, instead of living generously. How does this play out? Just for example, let's go back to the phones, the cell phones. Cell phones these days are really expensive. I mean, if you're into those premium devices, you're spending about $1,000 a pop. And there are still people that are spending $1,000 every year because they keep on upgrading to the next phone. Some of you might be in that sort of position. I know I've been tempted to be there, too. But you see, if I had just skipped one generation of phones, I could have had an extra $1,000, dollars—a $1,000 to give to someone who actually needed it. Right? There's a selfishness that occurs that makes us unable to be generous. We're grasping for the luxuries and comforts of life because we're comparing and we're wanting to say, this is what I want, rather than saying, where could I give this to those who need it? You see, the dark side of an economy of works and merit is selfishness, and it is rampant in our society. In the classic novel, Where the Red Fern Grows, now I don't know, if, I don't know enough about raccoons to know if this is really how raccoons are. It was in a book. Um, and a fictional book at that. But in, in that story, you know, they're, they're trapping and hunting raccoons, right? They got the dogs and they're hunting raccoons. And one of the ways they trap the raccoon is they have a shiny object through a small hole where the raccoon would reach its hand through and it would grab it because it wants it. But then by grabbing it, the fist or the hand becomes too big for that hole. But that raccoon wants it so badly that they will not let it go and then they get trapped. We are that way a lot of times, friends. We become fixated on the things that we want, lose sight of being able to let go of some of those things, let go of the materialism that drives us to let go of the need and the temptation to keep on acquiring bigger, better, faster, shinier things. I'm certain that the workers in this story are so focused on themselves that they lost out on the opportunity to celebrate the generosity of the landowner. They could have been in that situation and said, wow, that landowner is very generous, that is awesome. But instead, they were focused on themselves. The selfishness is in direct contrast to a spirit of generosity. The comparative spirit is in contrast to grace. The fixation on earning and merit is in contrast to the grace that we believe in as Christians. Instead of grasping things for ourselves, we have the opportunity to say, okay, let's open up our hands in a position of giving and generosity. There is a countercultural kingdom of heaven, right, that is built upon and fueled by grace, is filled with gratefulness, and is marked by generosity. God's kingdom which stands in contrast to our world, demands that we, God's kingdom, in contrast to the world order, which demands that we earn our keep, that we keep up with the Joneses, invites us to a very different sort of life. A generous life. A gracious life. I think that the invitation for us this morning, as we read this parable, is to, Open our hearts and minds so that we can say, along with what's known as the Lord's Prayer, Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not the way necessarily that I have been taught by my society, but God, shape me to lean into what it's like to live in your kingdom, a kingdom marked by grace gratefulness and generosity. Will we embrace the kingdom of heaven where things really are not fair? Will we embrace grace and generosity as more important? Indeed, there is a place that is in Scripture and very clear that justice and righteousness matter. It is very clear in Scripture, but the dominant refrain, however, still is, That at the end of the day, worthiness, merit, is not the main thing. It is, as St. Paul writes in his letter to the the Ephesians, it is by grace that we have been saved, and not as a result of effort or works, so that no one can boast. Let's learn to live into the kingdom by living graciously, extending grace to our neighbors and our friends when they make mistakes. To not expect our friends to earn our care and love, but to give it freely instead. Let's learn to live gratefully, not caught up in the rat race of material wealth and material goods, but being thankful for what we have. And let us live generously giving where we can. If you say one day, I'm going to hold off on this cup of coffee that might cost me an exorbitant amount. Why is coffee so expensive? And that I would take that $4 and give it instead. Let us live generously. Let us live in accordance with the faith that we claim we have in line with the salvation we have received. Let's be generous. It's not fair. But that's the way it should be. And thank God. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that when you looked at humanity, fairness was not what you judged us by. But that it was your grace and love that reigned supreme. Thank you, Lord, that you have extended grace to us. Lord, may we extend it to others. Thank you, Lord, that you were generous to us. Lord, may we be generous to others. Lord, if any of us are caught in that comparative trap, into that rat race of material wealth, Lord, would you help us let it go? to open up our hands so that we can move forward in life and in joy in your kingdom. In Christ's name, amen.